everybody and welcome it's 11 p.m eastern time wednesday march 30th 2022 and thank you for joining us for the 127th episode of the rock and roll strength radio show here on blog talk radio special thanks to our host ndb media i'm casey shapiro and with me tonight is dr stephen mathis aka the rock and roll strength Come on, applause. Let's say hi to Dr. Mathis. Come on. The wave is being misbehaving with me. Come on. I apologize. There we go. All righty. Yeah, I know. Technical barf. Um, we will be taking calls from our listeners all evening during the show. For the next hour at 914-338-0314. You can also follow along in our live chat room on blogtalkradio.com as the show is happening. Before we begin, a couple quick disclaimers. This show does not constitute a doctor-client relationship, nor legal or medical representation of any kind. Also, the views expressed on this show are those of Dr. Mathis and Ms. Shapiro and are not an official stance on behalf of the psychological community or its peer vetting or regulatory bodies and a partridge in a pear tree. All right. Hmm. Now a topic relevant bit of music played by Dr. Mathis himself. Take it away, doc. time thank you very much for that and if you don't mind please let us know the name of the song and the artist and its relevance to tonight's topic okay then well uh (laughs) 
given the uh, what we're going to be talking about this evening, I thought the uh, previous entry to our catalog of opening tunes was very appropriate. It is one of mine, and uh, you may have noticed the nod to the knack at the end of that, which is actually in the original song, and the title of the song is, and I kid you not, My Corona. (laughs) (laughs) Oh! Oh my God, it's topic relevant and a dad joke at the same time. <laughs> that is correct. I get two for one on this one, right? And it really Yay. is a song about when the COVID uh, epidemic stuff uh, started out, I went, I got to get something to laugh about. And so I wrote a song yeah. called My Corona. Oh, my God. Go. That is awesome. Thank you. <laughs> so as Dr. Mathis mentions with great glee, <laughs> tonight's episode is, is entitled, yes, Overkill. COVID return anxiety, and there's a nod to Colin Hay of Men at Work because Overkill is one of his solo works, and we will discuss this in a moment. Before we begin our topic discussion, let's first go to the Rock and Roll Shrink Recalls, a moment of rock music trivia stories as recounted by Dr. Mathis, if you would, sir. Okay, on our last episode, uh, I talked about uh, the studios in Montserrat, uh, the air studios. And I thought uh, in a related and sort of putting the cherry on top topic would be discussing its originator, uh, Sir George Henry Martin, uh, typically known to most people as George Martin, frequently referred to as the fifth Beatle uh, because of all his work composing and arranging and producing a large body of the Beatles' work. Um, but he also did a lot of other things. Uh, so, I mean, and I mentioned last time that he would started out at, at Parlophone Records, but he started out in a very unusual way and really started doing comedy and uh, novelty stuff uh, working with people doing like joke and comedy records like Peter Sellers, for example, uh, and did a lot of 30 number one, I think 30 or 31 number one hits uh, in Britain and something like 22 in the United States. But he also worked with other pop artists, which I'm going to talk about later. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was knighted in 1996, which is why he's referred to Sir George Martin. Uh, when he started out, uh, he started playing piano uh, and when he was age six years old and his mom got in piano lessons, but she got into a big spat with his piano teacher and immediately ceased lessons. Now, that kind of postponed his musical career. Uh, in 43, he joined the Royal Navy and became a commissioned officer and left the service in 47. And encouraged by his pianist, teacher, and broadcaster, I think the guy's name was Sidney Harrison. Uh, Martin used his veterans, um, you know, stuff that he had acquired, veterans grant, excuse me, I'm having a anomia rainfart here, uh, to attend the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, where he studied both oboe and piano, and picked up a long-time interest he had developed in Rachmaninoff, and Ravel, and along with Cole Porter, which I thought was a very interesting uh, combination. Uh, His oboe teacher during that time was a woman named Margaret Elliott, who just happened to be the mother of Jane Asher. And for folks who know anything about Paul McCartney's history, uh, she was one of his early paramours. So... uh, he got married uh, to his uh, – Martin, not McCartney – got married to his original wife, I think, in 48, and had two children, and then divorced and later remarried in 66, uh, Judy Lockhart Smith, and that was the marriage that spawned Giles Martin, uh, who is the, uh, his son that most people are aware Uh, of who's become a very accomplished uh, producer, arranger, and does a lot of Paul McCartney stuff, and sort of taken over where his dad's left off. Uh, So after he graduated, he started working for the BBC's classical music department, then joined EMI, 
uh, and which later uh, and later uh, subsidiary of this was Polyphone Records, and he was there from I think 50 to 55, and then took on a lot of classical uh, and original cast recordings from Britain and Ireland. And then it's when he also started producing a lot of comedy stuff. So he did comedy things for people like, uh, as I mentioned before, Peter Sellers, uh, Spike Martin, uh, Anthony Hopkins, Peter Ustinov. So he's got a pretty, you know, he had a pretty replete history of, you know, some pretty big hitters. Uh, but, you know, he, he just worked with a boatload of people during that period and then started working with some pop groups, uh, including people like Jim Dale and the Vifers Skiffle Group. Uh, also did some work on David Frost's BB show uh, on TV, I think the week that was, which I think was in 63. Don't quote me on that one, but I think that was the year it came out. And he was an integral part of that. Um, he ended up being contacted by Sid Coleman, uh, who told him, who was a um, promoter for Ardmore and Beach, Beachwood Group, who said, hey, you, you need to get to know this guy named Brian Epstein. He's managing this band called The Beatles. And ah. they've, they've already been turned down. Uh-huh. They've already been turned down by Decca Records and a bunch of other people. And but I think you might have an interest in him. So he met with Brian Epstein. And he wasn't particularly impressed with the band, but he was very impressed with Epstein's enthusiasm. And he was so impressed with enthusiasm, even before seeing them live, he signed them. Uh, they got into wow. their first session. Yeah, got into their first session. And if folks may remember that the original drummer was a, a person named Pete Best. And the engineer uh, and some of the folks at the record company were not very happy with his drumming. And they brought in uh, another session player, I think his name was Andy White, to play drums and eventually ended up getting Ringo uh, as their full-time drummer. Uh, then he had gone on to arrange most of their stuff, uh, did all the, uh, actually scored and conducted the strings uh, accompaniment for Eleanor Rigby. Uh, you know, he was a recording engineer uh, for Strawberry Fields uh, and did all kinds of editing and made all kind of weird things like on I Am The Wars, did all the, the quirky background stuff, did all the arrangement for violas, cellos, and the brass stuff, um, you know, uh, did the piano solo on In My Life, you know, which everybody oh. thinks is a uh, harpsichord, but it's not. So what he did was slow he couldn't play it fast enough in that thing to make it sound great. So he took it and slowed it down, played a piano, and then when he sped the piano up, it sounded like a harpsichord. <laughs> so that's actually oh. a piano in my life. Not a, yeah, not a harpsichord. Uh, and worked with McCartney on the orchestral ending to uh, Day in the Life. Uh -huh. and, uh, also played the piano. Uh, to Lovely Rita off uh, Sgt. Pepper's and did the harpsichord in Fixing a Hole and Because uh, did the tape loop arrangement and Steam Organ on Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite, uh, did the orchestration for Good Night, which is off the White Record. Uh, and after that, after the Beatles had done their thing, uh, composed and arranged the score for the film Yellow Submarine, also worked with McCartney uh, on the James Bond film, Live and Let Die, which McCartney and Wings did the uh, theme for, uh, and uh, helped Paul and Linda arrange, prior to that, the uh, Uncle Albert Al Admiral Halsey cut off of uh, Ram. Uh, you know, he's done instrumental scores for some of the movies, like Hard Day's Night that the Beatles did, uh, Ferry Cross the Mersey, Yellow Submarine, Live and Let Die, which I mentioned earlier, uh, I mean, he's just done a, just the body of work that this man's done is just unfrickin' believable. Uh, when the Beatles anthology thing came out, he did the post-production on that. Uh, he did the overdub on two old Lennon songs uh, and worked with Jeff Lynn of the Electric Light Orchestra. When uh, Cirque du Soleil, uh, Soleil, excuse me, and Love came about, he and his son uh, Giles Martin worked on remixing something like an hour's worth of Beatle tunes, hour and a half worth of Beatle tunes for the Las Vegas stage performance of Love, uh, and 
was uh, kind of the venture between the Cirque du Soleil and, and the Apple Corps to do the soundtrack for the show. Uh, I mean, just, I mean, the guys work with Beatles and Beatle-related stuff just goes on and on and on and on and on. Uh, Alan Parsons of the Alan Parsons Project uh, described Martin as having, quote-unquote, great ears and rightfully earning the title of the fifth Beatle. Uh, Julian Lennon, John Lennon's son, uh, spoke of Martin as the fifth Beatle without question, <laughs> which I thought was pretty uh, amazing. Uh, to name some of the other artists that he's worked with over the years, um, Jerry and the Pacemakers, uh, Kramer and the Dakotas, uh, who else is the guy I worked with? Um, the Band America, you know, Horse of No Name, uh, Jeff Beck, John McLaughlin. Uh, John Williams, not the conductor, but the uh, classical guitarist. Uh, people often confuse those two. Uh, Gary Booker, who is uh, with uh, uh, Procol Harum. Uh, Neil Sedaka. Uh, Kenny Rogers, for God's sake. Cheap Trick, Elton John. Uh, Little River Band, Celine Dion. Um, and UFO, one of my favorite uh, bands uh, with Michael Shanker. I played with them for the early stuff. Uh, and he also did work, did some work with Gary Glitter as well. Uh, he also recorded several songs under a pseudonym, uh, several pseudonyms actually. So you might see his name, uh, Paul Raven. That's uh, George Martin. <laughs> so he's he's got a lot of uh, you know hats and a lot of rings. And I suspect part of that was because of contractual stuff between record labels. A lot of folks did that. Folks may remember or may not be aware of that uh, George Harrison would record uh, under various uh, pseudonyms. So when he, for example, he's the co-author of Cream's song Badge, and he plays the guitar on the record as Langelo Mysterioso. <laughs> he also plays the guitar on Jack Bruce's first uh, solo album record, uh, Songs for Taylor, again, L'Angelo Mysterioso. So, you know, if you don't know that kind of stuff, you're looking at that and go, who the hell is that, right? Well, it's George Harrison. <laughs> uh, he worked with, uh, Martin worked with Pete Townsend on the musical stage production of, of Tommy. Uh, worked with Dire Straits on the Every Street record. So, I mean, he's just done a huge amount of stuff. Uh, did the uh, Candle in the Wind tribute with Elton John to Diana uh, after she had passed. I mean, just done a bunch of, bunch of, bunch of, bunch of, bunch of stuff. Uh, worked with Shirley Bassey when she recorded Goldfinger uh, for the uh, James Bond movie with the same name. He's the guy who's responsible for Matt Monroe being signed to EMI. And for those who don't know, Matt Monroe sings the uh, title track to the first Bond movie that was done for Russia with Love, or maybe the second Bond movie. So I mean, this guy has had his hands in so many things. It's just ridiculous and just an incredible man that's just ridiculously incredible uh died in 2016 and uh, no uh, cause of death was ever officially released he was 90 years old at the time uh and actually the first uh yeah so i might have made body yeah body just might have given out and going okay we're done uh but no they they did not comment on the cause of his death and his death was actually first reported by not surprisingly, on, on his Twitter account by Ringo Starr. So, the journal for the Beatles. So there you go. Uh, a life ridiculously well spent and uh, certainly deserved knighthood and was just an amazing producer, arranger, composer, conductor, musician, audio engineer. Just his influence cannot be underestimated, particularly uh not only with the Beatles and other people that he'd worked with, but just influencing other producers and arrangers and, you know, passing the baton on to his son, uh, Giles, who has continued uh, the work his father's done. So there you go, Sir George Martin, an often ignored individual who is definitely worth not overlooking. Definitely. So let's give him some appreciation. That's uh, one of the, one of the main things that's really cool about this show is all that stuff. You know, you're a big fountain of trivia and all these cool stories, and this way they're not forgotten. So that's always awesome. <laughs> well, you got to know your roots, you know. Yeah, and I, exactly. I feel 
you know, you have to, pay, from my perspective, one has to pay a debt of gratitude and homage to the folks that pave the way for the stuff that you do. And I mean, I, I will clearly tell you that without the influence of people like the Beatles and Zeppelin and Cream and um, Cat Stevens and Dan Fogelberg and Crosby Stills Nash and Joni Mitchell and those kind of folks, I would not do what I do because all of those folks played a huge impact. But the first band that really played an impact to me, and I got, I came in the late, into the game late with these folks, uh, were the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't get turned on them until they basically had almost broken up in their late career. Uh, somebody turned me on to Sgt. Pepper, and that was my first Beatle record I'd ever heard. And that was like years after it got released. And, uh, and I went, oh, these, are these the same guys that I, I, I heard a, saw an old, uh, uh, who was that, uh, Randy Big Shoe? Uh, can't oh, think of the guy's yeah. name. Yeah, I, I'm having a or brain fart. And uh, are these the guys that did Love Me Do on that on the Ed Sullivan show? Yes. And this doesn't sound a bit like the Beatles. Really? And <laughs> that because when I when I saw some of the old uh, Ed Sullivan reruns and they were doing the I Love You stuff, I'm like, big whoopee ding. Who the hell are these guys? You know, <laughs> I, I was not impressed. Sorry, folks, I was not impressed. But when I heard Sergeant Pepper, I'm like, who is that? Right. And then I kind of went retro and went from that to revolver, you know, to rubber sole. And I'm going, wait a minute, these guys have got a lot of double gone talent. Maybe I was a little too hosty with these folks. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I feel a, a huge debt owed to all these classic folks uh, of, of the acoustic genres, the pop genres, the rock genres, you know, the Eagles and, you know, all those folks. It's just, uh, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be doing what I do musically without their influence and i just think it's important to pass that along and to educate people about things they may not be aware of and uh to really appreciate the music because i you know a lot of people who aren't musicians and have never been in the studio or don't know anything about it think you just plug a guitar and amplifier and record it and it's done and it's (laughs) it's a whole lot more complicated than that and you know, people just don't have a clue. And, uh, you know, when, when I take some of my guitar students and show them some of the stuff, they're, they're like, oh, my God, we had no idea. I'm like, well, no, and there's no way you, you would unless somebody sat you down and shows you this stuff. So I think for yeah. our listeners of our show, this is kind of a sneaky way for me to pass on some of my uh, hero worship, if you will, and trivia knowledge <laughs> to folks who would otherwise not get it, who are actually listening to the show probably for uh, mental health purposes and would probably like me to shut up, which I'm going to do. Um, In the meantime, giving them a little nod of, uh, you know, some of my musical roots way before I got into mental health. So there you go. Definitely. Well, thank you for that. Let's do another round. And if you're serious about the camper, I'd be glad to bring that up on one of our future episodes. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. I, I actually think that some people come for the music and some come for the mental health and you know it actually if i could put you on the spot i don't have this in the script but do you mind since we're all the way up to episode 127 telling real quick the story of why you are the rock and roll shrink because i know some of our newest listeners may not quite understand one of these things is not like the other ones (laughs) yeah um yeah sure it's a really quick story uh i was doing uh, some of the basic uh, groundwork research and doing sampling with my new music-assisted therapy program at the time that I was developing. And I was doing the normie sampling and all I was doing it on a bunch of adolescent inpatient folks at various hospitals and uh, institutions. And I would come in with a guitar, acoustic guitar, to come in with a, uh, a boombox and CDs or whatever, and play music and start my my music-assisted therapy program that I developed. And the kids would go, oh, it's the rock and roll shrink. (laughs) And and it was kind of this funny moniker that sort of stuck. Uh, It wasn't something I, I didn't dub myself that by any means. I would have never thought of that. But I just thought it was really cute and funny. And, And that's kind of what I became known as. And half the kids in the uh, units that I was doing the, the program with, had, didn't even know what my name was. They just knew me by as the rock and roll shrink. 
<laughs> and that's kind of how this got started. So when we did the radio show and I, you had heard the story, you thought, hey, that's a great name for the show. So there, that's how we got it. That's how I got it. Yep. I just I I like to throw that out there every once in a while because you know the first time I ever heard it I didn't quite catch it either so I I think it's a fun little story and helps everybody understand how these go together and uh, God knows I know a lot of our listeners probably would agree that music can be very therapeutic so I think it oh, makes absolutely. sense absolutely yeah yeah well you know I got those ideas from some of my other heroes like you know Plato Aristotle. Uh, you know, those guys, because I'm a nerd in those that regard, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm a multifaceted okay. nerd. <laughs> yep, that's what we're here to do. Let's, let's do all the disciplines. Yeah. Alrighty, so tonight's topic, um, well, actually, let me just remind you guys, uh, we're still taking calls from our listeners and questions in the online chat room throughout the rest of the evening until around midnight. It's 1125, so We've got a little over a half hour left in case you guys do want to call in. Free, feel free to give us a call. And the number is 914-338-0314. Alrighty, welcome to episode 127, Overkill, Post-COVID Return Anxiety. So tonight's topic highlights the growing trend of unexpected and atypical anxiety that many people are suddenly experiencing when it comes time to even partially return to hybrid or even fully in-person work, school, social events, shopping, and other activities. I know we're not completely out of the woods, but numbers are going down and things are starting to open back up for quite a few people and stay there this time. So for the last two years, most of us have either been foregoing these things altogether or doing them in furtive nibbles of limited in-person time, coupled with virtual gatherings and spaces. We've had so many false starts and starts that got rolled back when science and answers were updated and adjusted. It was very frustrating. We had naturally have trouble becoming mentally prepared for such a big shift because of this. Many have become irritable or emotionally fraught with the changing landscape and a long list of missed opportunities, some of which cannot now be made up, such as being present when a loved one is sick and dying, actual funerals, or even activities involving someone who has since passed away, like you know some big-name concerts. Uh, we're struggling with resilience, resolve, and patience, and this affects our state when we return. Some are not handling it very well. So tonight we will discuss reactions to the idea of post-COVID reintegration, why reintegration is a stressor for some, ways to cope with reintegration stress and anxiety, and conclusions, closing remarks, and final suggestions on that. And before we dive in, I want to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and see if there's anything you want to say up front. Nope. Let's go. All righty. So, reactions to the idea of post-COVID reintegration. So, a lot of people are saying that while they really crave being back with their friends and doing their events, they're actually very anxious about getting back in physical touch with people. Have we been isolated so long that people are having mental health problems with the process of reopening? Pro tip, yes! (laughs) All right, so this first article is from Wild Cornell Medicine Physicians. They're faculty members of Wild Cornell Medical College in New York. Post-pandemic anxiety. Life is returning to normal, so why do you feel anxious? And this actually came out, in fact, all of these articles, not a one of them is from 2022. They were talking about this last summer. So this has been a thing people noticed in mental health circles quite some time ago, and it's still a thing now. Uh, So this is from June 2021, and they say, after more than a year of social distancing and without knowing who is fully vaccinated, returning to, quote, normal may feel scary, especially if you already live with anxiety, according to Dr. Susan Evans, who's professor of psychology in clinical psychiatry. Quote, anxious individuals worry, Dr. Susan says. Whenever there's uncertainty about the future, there's a likelihood for increased worry and anxiety. The pandemic and its imperative to socially distance have also triggered or intensified social anxiety, which breeds worry about how others perceive you. 
There has also been an upswing in overall anxiety about job safety, going out of business, loss of income, or even housing. Quote, people are more worried than ever about their financial situation, Dr. Evans says. Longstanding and newly aggravated societal, cultural, and political problems have multiplied this anxiety. In the next article I want to read to you about people's reactions to reintegration is called Anxious About Returning to Work, Psychologists Offer Insight and Tips. That was written May 5th, 2021 by Iqbal Pitawala, it's I-Q-B-A-L, I hope I'm saying it right, and Holly Ober of UC Riverside, which is University of California, Riverside. And they say, after more than a year of working remotely, some employees have concerns about returning to the office and the life of the COVID-19 pandemic abruptly changed. Indeed, as COVID vaccines become increasingly available, Many are experiencing return-to-work anxiety and stress when contemplating returning to their desks. How might such anxiety be calmed and managed? Four experts at the University of California Riverside share their thoughts. And this is slightly jumping ahead because there's talk about how to cope, which we'll get into again later. Um, Okay. Kalina Mikalska, who is assistant professor of psychology at UC Riverside, says... In the absence of social interaction that our brain expects, increased isolation and loneliness can lead to increased risk for cognitive decline. And she poses a question. How may the brain have changed in more than a year of social isolation and working from home? How may the changes impact returning to work post-COVID? Answer that she offers. Humans are inherently a social species. And changes in people's interactions with those around them influence their neurobiology. We know from epidemiological work that the size and strength of people's social networks are associated with enhanced cognitive function, like working memory and emotion processing. Specifically, greater social action interaction correlates with increased volume in the amygdala, a brain region that encodes salient information in the environment and the hippocampus, a region important for learning and memory, as well as greater cortical thickness and prefrontal cortex. Uh, I know we're getting technical here, but I want you guys to understand how it all works. A region important in decision-making and social behavior. Together, this distributed network of brain regions enables us to learn about and recognize emotional cues in others in order to more effectively navigate our social world. The flip side, is that in the absence of the social interaction that our brain expects, increased isolation and loneliness can lead to increased risk for cognitive decline, as well as mental health consequences like depression, often disproportionately so in vulnerable members of the population, such as children, the elderly, and those with underlying mental health concerns. What this means for returning to work, and this applies to school or any activities that you've had to put on hold that we may have become more used to interacting with fewer people and turning inward so that a return to meetings, classes, and in-person social events can be overwhelmingly overwhelming initially and lead to greater anxiety, particularly as we have not been fully exercising our social social skills for over a year. Zoom doesn't count. As we take this next step, It's important to be kind to ourselves and remember that others may be facing similar challenges. I guarantee you they are. We should view this as an opportunity to be more empathic and compassionate as we collectively struggle to re-enter social life. And with this, I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Matt, see if there's anything you want to add. Yeah, I just want to remind uh, our listeners that in terms of the amygdala hippocampus, they are emotional seats. So it's a region that looks at emotional learning and memory in terms of the hippocampus and the amygdala coding uh, important social and personal emotional networking learning and memory. So the emotional component is really important in this paradigm because that's the part that where everybody's struggling with is the emotional stuff. And so if you don't have that input and you're not doing it, um, for lack of a better term, you get out of practice. 
and then it becomes kind of fright a little you know kind of intimidating and or frightening for you depending on who you are and you know how social you are versus how isolatory you are versus how resilient you are so there's all of these you know underlying factors that determine that yes that's a very good point thank you for that clarification sure all right so let's go to section 2 which is why reintegration is a stressor for some and I do realize not every single person is anxious about this, but we have seen a strong uptick in news and social media mentioning that a lot of people are anxious about it when they're not normally anxious people. And that's why we want to talk about this. All right. So unlike many other types of emergencies or life interruptions, this specific pandemic has been full of uncertainty false starts, constantly changing data, and other uncertainties that have made it incredibly difficult to keep or even reestablish any sense of routine control and ability to care for oneself or household. We've had so many changes and setbacks in such a short time. I know it doesn't seem like two years is a short time, but it's a lot crammed into those two years. And it makes us resentful or anxious about trying to get back to, quote, normal or any sense of normalcy until we can feel certain that we'll stay there. We're afraid to change or change back to routines that can be upended again. So we are anxious even about things we've looked forward to for months or even a couple years. We're constantly waiting for the other proverbial shoe to drop. Additionally, Many people had to scramble to make new arrangements, many of which were merely what works for now. But as the months went on, many started wondering if they did authentically want to go back to what they had before, and some did not. And worse, some did, but the situations were not sustainable and went away, leaving them now stranded. Comment on this, again, from Wild Cornell Medicine, uh, the article from June 2021. And they say, despite growing optimism about the course of the COVID-19 pandemic and the rollout of vaccines that are proving to protect against some variants, television news and social media focus on the negative, how vaccine resistance may undermine efforts to achieve herd immunity, rising infections from COVID variants, and concerns about the longevity of vaccine-derived immunity. Quote, for anxious individuals, the default position is to ruminate on worst-case scenarios, Dr. Evans that we mentioned above says, rumination leads to more anxiety and so it becomes a vicious cycle, end quote. To interrupt the cycle, it helps to understand the difference between productive and unproductive worrying, Dr. Evans explains. Unproductive worry is about focusing on things that might happen and spinning in your head about it. Productive worry is asking the question, is there anything I can do about this for now? and then taking the appropriate action. For example, ruminating and feeling anxious over whether you can handle returning to your office is unproductive worry, whereas deciding to take one day at a time and focus on the present moment is productive. Quote, it is important to address the problem of avoiding life and engaging and engage in work and other activities that are considered reasonable and safe, she says. Uh, Another article that I want to quote to you is called Stress About Returning to Work, Beating COVID Anxiety, uh, June 2021, by Georgetown Behavioral Hospital of Brown County, Ohio, not the Georgetown next to D.C. Why am I worried about going back to work after COVID? For a lot of people, these feelings of anxiety can feel confusing. After all, returning to work can mean an improved financial situation and a feeling of returning to normalcy. So what's causing this stress about going back to work? Psychologists attribute this phenomenon to, quote, re-entry anxiety or stress related to going back to normal after a year where social distancing met safety. It typically comes in one of two forms, and this is not necessarily pandemic-type things, but any situation like this. The first where an individual is concerned about safety. In cases like this, your anxiety might be centered around concern for not catching or transmitting COVID-19 while working. This is especially common in people who are returning to the office after working from home since they already have the financial stability that comes with employment. 
you know, since they've been doing that at home. The other common type of reentry anxiety is based on going back to regular social interaction. For many individuals, socialization skills have gotten rusty over the last past year, or now two years, and it can feel uncomfortable to imagine having to interact with people every day again. Oh, God, I don't want to people. (laughs) And we make that joke, but it's a real problem for people. As a result, you might find yourself dreading going back to work after COVID. A little bit of anxiety is normal, but when it starts to feel debilitating, it's time to take steps to get your anxiety under control. And with that, I am going to turn to Dr. Mathis and see if you would like to add anything. I'm going to uh, save my comments till after the next part. Okay. Then let's go to number three. Pardon me a moment. Sorry, I need to clear my throat. Uh, section three, ways to cope with reintegration, stress, and anxiety. And again, from Wild Cornell Medicine, They say on this, knowing all of this may help lessen, but not erase, your anxiety and depression, which may linger for a while. In the meantime, Dr. Evans suggests easing back into life at your own comfort level. Quote, if you've been isolating and have not been outdoors, start with small steps such as walking to the corner, she advises. Practice building on this experience as your confidence grows. Keep in mind that having one foot out of your comfort zone is a good thing because it suggests you are stretching yourself, end quote. Practicing mindfulness is a useful skill to cope with general anxiety, she continues. Um, this is very important. I really liked this quote because I sort of struggled to understand mindfulness, and when people define it, often it's vague, but I found this very helpful. She says, mindfulness is about paying attention on purpose in the present moment. Paying attention to the present moment is the opposite of ruminating and being stuck in one's head in unproductive worry. So I thought I'd throw that out there for you guys. To cope with specific anxiety about returning to work, school, or socializing, Dr. Evans suggests building your stress resistance by getting enough sleep, exercising, practicing yoga or meditation, or talking to a friend. I know these are things that we have suggested on this show for a wide variety of conditions and so they are probably just good to get in the habit if you haven't been spending your time at home doing them anyway. She also warns against excessive intake of the media, particularly social media, as well as overindulging in alcohol or food. Quote, anxious individuals may use substances to avoid the way they're feeling, so be careful of excessive alcohol or other emotion-numbing strategies such as overeating, end quote. As you work through your anxiety, try to remember that you are not alone. The pandemic has struck everyone in one way or another, and many people may be feeling as anxious as you. If you previously struggled with anxiety and or depression, then you may want to seek professional help. You may join a group therapy program to work on your social anxiety. Whatever you do, Try to practice self-compassion and care and don't feel compelled to hide your feelings. Sharing them will encourage others to share theirs, which may help you feel better and less alone in the long run. And um, another article that I quoted earlier has another section about this. This is uh, stress about returning to work from Georgetown Behavioral Hospital. Uh, Going back to work tips. First, imagine situations you're afraid of. It can seem counterintuitive, but sometimes imagining a scary situation can help you work through it and make a plan. In other words, in your head before it's actually happening. You can kind of, it's like a test run or a dress rehearsal. And that can help you diffuse some of your anxiety. Uh, Number two, and this is a good one, visit your work first, if you can. Try going back to your office before it officially opens up again. Just sitting at your desk again can help get rid of some of your anxiety about returning to work, since it will feel more real and less abstract. Even if you can't physically enter your office yet, consider walking around the area near your workplace just to get used to being in that space again. And third, find ways to stay safe at work. 
If you're concerned about staying safe at work, then it can be distressing to see coworkers choose not to be vaccinated or refuse to wear masks or social distance in the workplace. Look into your workplace's COVID-19 safety policy to see what kind of accommodations you can expect to make sure that you feel comfortable and protected while on the job. When anxiety about returning to work is something more. It's no secret that the past year has been a bad year for mental health. And for many people, anxiety about returning to work after COVID is more than a temporary or situational issue. Instead, it may be simply an expression of an underlying anxiety disorder. So how can you tell normal stress about returning to work from an anxiety disorder? Well, if trying strategies to minimize your anxiety doesn't work, that could be a sign that you need more intensive care. Or if you go back to work and your anxiety doesn't seem to go away, or if you become anxious about something else immediately, this does indicate or it could indicate a more persistent issue with anxiety and stress. Additional suggestions for coping are planning and developing what habits you would like to maintain as you transition back to campus. For example, quiet morning routines, walks, and exercise. Consider what has benefited your overall well-being and make these non-negotiable. Next, accepting that things will look different. Gaining support, friends, family, therapy can be vital to adjustment. And last, reconnecting with coworkers, schoolmates, or a friend who lives near the activity in question before it is time to go back. Maybe have coffee or lunch nearby and ease back into contact. And with that, I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and I believe you do have something you want to bring up. Yeah, there's a couple of things I want to say. Um, first of all, never give in to anxiety because it just it's not the kind of thing that goes away. It's not like wine. It doesn't get better with time. <laughs> uh, and so you want to address it early on and look at it head on and not resort to uh, escape avoidant quote-unquote coping tools like stuffing your feelings literally uh, or starting a smoking uh, habit or a drinking habit or whatever. Uh, the other thing I would tell people is, you know, even if you get COVID, for most people it's not a death sentence. For some people it is very dangerous, but for most people it's not a death sentence. Uh, the worst that will happen is you feel like you know what for a week or two, right? And remember, you probably have a better chance of getting into a car wreck and having damage than you do damage, damage from COVID. And you have to be willing to face the fact that, we, that life is full of anxiety. You know, it's like I tell most of, of one kind or another, like I tell most of my patients, you know, they're like, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm stressed about this. I'm stressed about that. And what if, what if you don't want to do the what if game? Right? As I tell most of my people, I could get killed driving out of my parking lot of my office. And I have been actually hit driving out of my parking lot of my office before. No kidding. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a, you know, oh, my God, I was in the hospital for three weeks kind of thing. But, you know, I was pulling out of the, of the uh, parking lot, and some person was pulling out of a nearby parking lot and sideswiped me. I mean, just broadsided me because she wasn't paying attention. It was 7 o'clock at night, and she was talking on the phone or whatever, and broadsided me, just boom, right? So all kinds of unplanned things can happen. Now, that doesn't mean you throw caution to the wind and you just run out and go, okay, <laughs> you know, um, but you do have to face it. Take reasonable uh, steps to preclude getting things like COVID, whether it's wearing masks, whether it's doing social distancing, uh, whatever you feel will help you. Uh, talking about it with, with coworkers that you're concerned about or, you know, students. And don't do dumb things. Don't go to frat parties if you think a bunch of people there will be doing irrational behavior, you know, irresponsible behavior, and those are probably some of the same people who are doing some crazy stuff during this COVID thing. I mean, one of my kids, actually a couple of my kids got COVID because their roommates went to frat parties during the height of COVID. You know, and of course, oh. there weren't many masks. Yeah, and they sure as hell weren't doing social distancing, let me tell you. <laughs> you know, it, you know, it was kind of like if you saw some of the spring breakers when COVID first came out, and they're like, 
screw COVID, we're going to go on spring break and, you know, populate the beaches. And, you know, and I'm like, okay, guys, you know, and, yeah. and I'm not, you know, I'm not one of these people. And I basically told COVID to go, you know, go, you know, F yourself because, you know, I take enough vitamin C's and I eat cleanly and yada, yada, yada. So I, this thing never bothered me in any way, shape or form. But I wasn't dumb about it. I didn't go out and do a shit ton of gigs. I didn't go socialize at bars. I didn't go to the beaches that were uber inhabited. <laughs> you know, I didn't go to frat parties. Right? You know, yeah. uh, you, you have to be smart about stuff. And I would say the same thing about returning to work. Just be mindful, and that's a great word, be mindful of what you're doing. And if you have anxiety about it, talk with about it with some of your coworkers, particularly some of the ones that aren't quite as responsible. And, you know, if your anxiety doesn't go away, get help for it soon and early. Uh, talk about it with loved ones or friends that you, you know, for, for ideas on how to lessen it. And if what you're doing is not working, get help for it soon. It is the kind of thing that easily snowballs into much bigger stuff, and you don't want to do that. Nor do you want to become a social isolate and a hermit. That's not healthy either. So just, you know, just be smart about it. I guess that's what I'm saying. Is when, as you return to work or return to school or whatever, just be smart about it. Use some basic uh, common sense that doesn't seem to be so common anymore and uh, just basic precautionary stuff kind of like you would when you're driving learning to drive a car you drive a little slower you make sure your seatbelt is on you make sure you know how your car's going to handle in curves you know you don't just go running 100 miles an hour on a curve and go woohoo you know the first week <laughs> you're driving a car right well you do not, yep. not unless you want to get in a wreck um it's the same thing you know just be what i would call common sense smart about this thing and if you catch yourself ruminating, do something to distract your brain other than, you know, uh, smoking three tons of pot or uh, shooting cocaine or uh, eating a box of uh, Whitman samplers or <laughs> whatever, you know, uh, address it and face it. And there's nothing to be embarrassed about. Everybody has something that they're uncomfortable with, that they're afraid of, that they have. You know, for me, it's dentists. <laughs> you know, oh, I don't yeah. like people mucking with my teeth. Oh my God! Um, and and the dentist I have now and have had for many years is just amazingly good. But I can tell you, the first my first visit, I went in there, I was not a very happy child, and uh, I was a pretty nervous camper. But you know, you can't ignore your teeth. They sure as heck won't ignore you if you do. <laughs> so I was like, suck it up, dude. You know, and I did what I had to do, and I went in, and it turned out really well, thankfully. But I'd had really horrific experiences with dentists as a child, so um, I, and I don't want to use the word traumatized, but I was it was it was a pretty unpleasant experience for me. So uh, you know, I have my things just like everybody else does, and the best thing to do is to face them head on, prep yourself for them, you know, psych up for them, and just do them. Don't escape and avoid them, and don't medic don't self medicate your way away from them. That's not going to help you. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's good advice. You know, get help for it. Don't pretend it's not there and ignore it and ignore it. That's just going to make it right. worse. That, that, and that's true of all right. these, you know, anxious-making situations, definitely. Right. All righty. So last little part here. We're getting close to the top of the hour, so good timing. Is conclusions, closing remarks, and final suggestions. So. Really, just in summary, we hope our listeners now better understand about potential after effects of pandemic isolation, including anxiety and depression, and why many of us are anxious to get our lives back, yet filled with anxiety and other emotions about it. We hope you will be able to navigate your feelings as our society begins shifting back. And, you know, as Dr. Mathis points out, the parts of the brain that are being affected are very heavily regulating emotions. So, you may find, even though you're not traditionally an emotional or anxious person, that reintegration makes you like that. So you're not having a meltdown. You know, this can be dealt with. It may be unusual. This may be the first time you've had anxious breakdowns about stuff. It's okay. So we hope that you can navigate your feelings as we start shifting back and if you're doing all right, then try to help with the feelings of others close to you if the transition is difficult for them. And I'm going to check in with you one last time and see if there's anything about the evening's conversation that you want to add anything before we start to wrap up. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say two things. First of all, don't be embarrassed to get help. I can't even tell you how many calls I've gotten during the pandemic for people who, for both depression and anxiety. Uh, and it has certainly been the, uh, the, the sort of cue for our, my uh, addictions population to relapse. So please don't think there's something, quote, unquote, wrong with you or you're crazy or whatever. I mean, a lot of people have had a hard time with this, so reach out to somebody. Uh, and the other thing I would say is if you know somebody's having difficulty with this, be kind. You know, I know it's annoying and I know this whole thing has been, you know, irritating and depressing and frustrating and stressing and all this kind of, you know, negative stuff. But remember, everybody else is going through this, too. So please be kind in your interactions with other people. Yeah, I definitely can get behind that. So, all righty. So this wraps up our show, Post-COVID Return Anxiety. And on behalf of myself, Dr. Mathis, and NDB Media, we want to thank our listeners this evening and give our appreciation to those of you who may be joining us later via podcast, iTunes, and I need to add in here, I have now found out we are on iHeartRadio and tune in as well, and I want to make sure I mention that in case anybody uses those apps and is looking for us, and also Spotify. So we will see you guys in two weeks with a new topic for discussion. That will be Wednesday, April 13th, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on blogtalkradio.com. We also want to give a shout-out to other NDB Media shows that are coming up in the next couple of weeks. Starting with tomorrow night, Travel Itch Radio on Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. San Antonio is a special place from the Alamo to Riverwalk and beyond. Hear all about the Texas treasure and the surrounding hill country when Travelage Radio presents D.D. Potete. <laughs> oh, it's P-O-T-E-E-T-E, and I hope I said that right. Uh, visit San Antonio. Dan Schlossberg and Mary Ellen Nugent Lee present the 451st episode of their award-winning show. Sports Talk with the Guys, Saturday morning extravaganza, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, this coming Saturday and every Saturday morning. The Monday morning quarterbacks are live on Saturday morning on StreamYard. Check the NDB Media uh, Facebook page for links and times. This coming Sunday, the 3rd of April, 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, The Walking Dead Online Viewing Party, Season 11, Episode 15, called Trust. Synopsis is... Hornsby marches Daryl and troops to confront Maggie at Hilltop. After a harrowing heist, Rosita gets Connie, Kelly, Eugene, and Max to investigate the Miltons. Ezekiel helps hospital patients in need. Please join me as we watch the current episode live, then rate it and discuss trivia, bios, and other show info during the commercial breaks. Monday Night in America with Roger Noriega, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Roger D. Noriega brings you his unique take on politics current events, entertainment, sci-fi, and history, currently also hosted on StreamYard. Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Fandom Access Week in Review. Join the TV tantrum of Jamie, Karen, and AJ as they digest another night of TV. Please look for The Rock and Roll Shrink on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes, on Spotify, on TuneIn Pro, and iHeartRadio. And on the web at www.rockandrollshrink.com. Good night, everybody. Thank you for joining us. See you soon. And rock on. Good night.